You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Who does your body belong to? It was rhetorical. It was more like a time for you to reflect. Who does your body belong to? Correct Christian answer, God. I think for the average modern American, that answer would be so obvious to just, you know, the average person that it would almost sound silly. My body belongs to me. What what other possible answer is there? My, My body belongs to me. Did you know that throughout history, there have been a lot of different answers to that question? There have been times and places where if someone was asked the question, uh, who does your body belong to? They would have said, belongs to the state, the government, the king or the queen or the emperor. And he or she has rights to do with me, send me wherever. In our country, just a few hundred years ago, if you were of African descent, it was believed that you could belong to an enslaver It was thought that human bodies could be purchased and therefore owned. In other places throughout history, and even in in some locations today, it is thought that a man's body belongs to him and his wife's body also belongs to him. So as we move forward in our series that we're starting today, uh, I think you'll see that while some of these answers are certainly better than others, each of them is a bit flawed in their own ways. Let me ask you another question. Maybe a little bit more difficult to answer, at least quickly. Also rhetorical, heads up. What is your body for? What's it for? There's a uh, often told preacher story, probably made up, about a little boy who finds a hammer. He's never seen a hammer before. He runs out into the yard. The dad is watching. And the little boy sees the claws on the back of the hammer, and he proceeds to begin to dig a hole with the hammer. And the dad walks outside and he says, hey, do you know what that is? And the son says, no, not really, but look, it can do this. And the dad says, well, yeah, I mean, it certainly can do that. It's called a hammer. Let me show you what it's actually for. And he grabs a nail, drives it into the board, and he says, this is the purpose of a hammer. So what is the human body for? Sure, you can do a lot of things with it. Our, Our bodies can work. They can create art. We can play music. We can speak. We can write. We can tell stories. Our bodies can make love or war, masterpieces or messes. But what is its actual purpose? What are our bodies for? Today, there are messages all over the place about what we should or should not be doing with our bodies, what policies we should or should not advocate for, and ultimately, what constitutes the good life when it comes to our embodied existence. I'm sure you've noticed that people often disagree with each other aggressively on all of these topics. But it seems to me that what tends to go unrealized is that we're not starting by asking the most important question. What are our bodies for? I think this is part of the reason why very little ground seems to be gained when we discuss all the other questions related to this subject. When it comes to questions about gender and sexuality and desire and all of it, a lot of controversial subjects we could discuss are actually first about a question that no one is asking. 
So if I was going to use a philosophical term, I would use the word telos. It's a, a Greek term that Aristotle used quite often, and it means the end or the goal or the, the purpose of a thing, telos. And for something as important as our bodies themselves, I think we do well to have a thoughtful answer. A lot of foundational work I'd like to do today to set us up for the rest of our series and to frame our time this morning in an effort to answer that question. I want to break things down into three stories. Three stories. A secular story that attempts to answer that question, a Gnostic story, and then a Christian story. So first, a secular story. What's your body for? I think if the secular story was a bumper sticker, it would be the bumper sticker, your body may be a temple, but mine is a playground. So for the secular story, the question, what's your body for, is answered with some version of nothing. So just have fun with it. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain, do whatever you want with your body, as long as you don't hurt someone else or someone else's body. And in this story, desires are deified. So any denial of a desire would be oppressive, borderline abusive to yourself. Because if your body is a playground, the only question left is, how would you like to play? There must be no restrictions that put limits on your ability to pursue your desires and your pleasure. If I were to cherry pick a verse from the Bible that describes the secular story, it would be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, where Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then, quote, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Writer Melinda Selmus puts a point on this. She says, quote, Beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. You can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Now, in order to believe this, you must either accept A, that your body is not you, it's just a shell or a juicy robot. What a term, juicy robot. That the real you controls or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we're terrified of this senseless nihilistic universe. I bet Melinda kills at parties. (laughs) So this is quite obviously a predominant view where we live. And if you skip the question that I asked, what's our body for? It's somewhat understandable that people would come to this conclusion that our bodies are just sort of flesh machines. They're just these things that we need to exist and we can and even should do whatever we want with them to maximize pleasure and avoid pain as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Who made your body? No one. You're a happy accident. Enjoy your luck while you can. That is the secular story of our bodies. Next, let me frame up a Gnostic story, a Gnostic story. So Gnosticism was an ancient belief system that thought that humans contained a divine spark that had fallen from an immaterial world into their bodies. And the most important thing in life was to free that spark from the cage of the body. So they believed, the Gnostics did, that the immaterial or the spiritual world was good, and then the physical material world was bad or lower or more base. And the purpose of human life was to escape and return to the spiritual realm that we came from. So that word Gnostic comes from Greek words that mean having knowledge, having knowledge. So it's all about 
this secret knowledge of what's on the inside. So the body is bad, the good stuff is inside, and the goal is to actualize what's on the inside at whatever cost to the outside. So inherent in this story is the idea of incongruence. It's the idea that that there's a real me inside of me. That's who I really am. And my body may or may not accurately reflect who I really am on the inside. My body may or may not be a good representation of who I really am on the inside. So physical embodiment has little relevance because my body's just a cage for the spirit that's trapped inside of me. It's not entirely dissimilar to the movie Soul. And what early Christians did is they uh, uh, accepted some of the tenets of this philosophy, and then they just kind of baptized it and added some spiritual language around it. And they misread passages from the New Testament that might talk about our flesh natures. And they thought, oh, see, look, the body is bad. The spirit is good. Jesus came to deliver me away from my body. Now, today, while people probably don't realize that they are Gnostic, There are all sorts of different outworkings of this. I recently came across a video that I thought verbalized this story very well. It's uh, from a popular YouTube channel called The School of Life. Here is, uh, I'll give you a little excerpt from the video here. It said, uh, quote, we're always being told that we should make peace with how we look, but why? We never chose our bodies, nor should we necessarily be forced to identify with them. They're like a random taxi we were shoved into at birth. The video goes on to talk about the, you know, the experience of a a person looking in the mirror and thinking, thinking what I see in the mirror doesn't accurately depict who I believe myself to be on the inside and about how unfair it is that we don't get to choose our bodies, how we sometimes feel that our features are unfaithful to how we feel about ourselves. They actually compared it to if you have a favorite book and they're turning it into a movie and you finally see an actor portraying one of your favorite characters and you're like, that's not how this person should look. This isn't right. Something's off. So like I said, incongruence is the theme here. The desire for escape of some kind from our bodies. And the idea is that the road to salvation is to free myself from the limits of my material body. So this would include a body-hating person and a body-obsessed person. One just shakes the bars of the cage with hatred. The other tries to bend and mold the cage to be as appealing and congruent as possible to what they think they are on the inside. It can lead to a devaluing of the human body. It can lead people to obsess over their body, to try to perfect it or change it so that it's a better match. No matter what, this story asserts my body is separate from me, from the real me on the inside. I find it to be a fairly depressing story. And in fact, it was formally named as one of the first Christian heresies. And the reason why, and the reason why the separation of body and spirit ultimately matters so much, as author Christopher West puts it, he says his, meaning Satan, his fundamental goal is always to split body and soul. Why? Well, there's a fancy theological word for the separation of body and soul. Perhaps you've heard of it, death. The body and soul were never meant to be disconnected, which leads us to the Christian story. Genesis chapter 1. I'd like to look at a couple verses there if you want to follow and read along. Genesis chapter 1, we'll look at verses 26 and 27. The third story, the Christian story. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that Hebrew word for man in verse 26 is Adam, which means all mankind, later becomes the proper name of this first human. This creature was made in God's very own image. Though though God himself is spirit, being made in his image means to reflect him in a meaningful way, to show what he's like, not completely dissimilar to how a child is something of an image of his or her mother and father. As the only created things said to be in God's image, this clear distinction is made between humans and the rest of all the creatures. And then in chapter two, we're told that these human creatures are not made from disembodied souls from the soul factory, but they're formed out of the dust of the ground. This is chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So dust and divinity, as Dallas Willard says. Raw materials from the earth and the very breath of God himself. So in these verses, we have this complex identity being constructed. Because on one hand, we're, we're clearly created beings. We're creatures formed from the raw materials of the earth. Being creatures, we're not free to usurp God's authority. We're not free to determine our own destiny or purpose. We're not free to decide what we're for. But then on the other hand, we're creatures made in God's image. Humans who, who lived in ancient biblical times almost always lived under the rule of a king or, or queen. And frequently these kings or queens would claim that they were God and would actually call themselves the image of God. They had authority over others. They got to decide what was gonna happen in their kingdom. They would even sometimes create these statues of themselves. And the Hebrew word for these statues is often translated as idol or image. And it's in that context that God says, I am the God of all gods. I run the universe, but here on earth, humans are my image bearers. They bear my likeness. They will extend my rule from the garden of Eden all over the earth. They'll be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over all the other creatures. So the creation of these image bearing creatures is something that God delights in. In fact, All throughout Genesis 1, we see God creating everything, planets and stars and animals and sea. And each time it says, the refrain is, and God saw that it was good. And it's not until after the creation of humanity that God stands back, looks at everything and says, this is very good. So if we're going to answer a question as important as, what's our body for? I think we have to go back to the original design. What was God's intent for the human body, and why does he stand back and gush over his created beings, calling them very good? So here's the best summary sentence I can quickly give for the Christian story of what the human body is for. You ready? Your body is a psychosomatic union made to image God, be filled with the spirit of God, and to cultivate the earth with God. Let me break that down. Your body is a psychosomatic union made to image God, to be filled with the spirit of God, and to cultivate the earth with God. All right, first, your body is a psychosomatic union. You ever heard uh, an ad commercial that says something like, um, you know, use this product and uh, your body will thank you? The question is, 
who is this you that is not your body that your body is going to thank? So there's a, a quote misattributed to C.S. Lewis that I've heard a bunch of different places. And the quote goes like this, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. And the problem is, C.S. Lewis never actually said that. And instead, what he did say in his book, God in the Dock, he says, body and soul exist in, quote, organic unity. Organic unity. Our bodies are a psychosomatic union, body and soul, skin and consciousness, dust and divinity. Our bodies are not cages for our souls. They're an inseparable part of our being. This is why scripture makes such a big deal out of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and therefore the bodily resurrection of those who are reconciled to him. The end state for those who are in Christ is not a disembodied existence on clouds playing harps, but a physical existence in our resurrected and glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. You cannot separate who you are from your physical self. And in a way, you already know this. We, we know that a person's height profoundly affects their personality and the way that they engage and interact with other people. In fact, we have a term for it. When a, when a man is short and he is too aggressive, it's called a Napoleon complex or short man syndrome. You're trying to compensate for physical shortcomings by pretending that you're a tough guy. So you're overly aggressive and domineering with your social behavior. Uh, we also know that very physically attractive people seem to exist in an entirely different world than the rest of us. So I had a friend growing up named Corey. The ladies loved Corey. I remember one time we were at the mall and I could not believe how many people were looking at him and staring at him. And I remember the thought coming to my mind, is this what life is always like for you? Strangers smiling and staring deeply into your eyes as you walk by? It was unbelievable. I had a, uh, one time we had a class together and the teacher was always just like, just like laughing at his bad jokes and talking to him constantly, just looking at him like, oh, Corey, you're so cute. And I'd be sitting over there like, Miss Williams, shut up, Gibson. Mm, yes, ma'am. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that the rest of us are gonna need an education because we're not gonna get by on our good looks. So if we could just get a minute, you know, just later, we'd appreciate it. Our bodies are part of our lived existence. They aren't just there. They're a part of who we are. Uh, we are bodies. No, we're more than that, but we're not less than that. There isn't a you inside of you and then a body that may or may not be congruent. You're one unified whole, mind, body, and soul, irreducibly interwoven, psychosomatic union, made to image God, made to image God. You know why God is so committed to saving humans from their sin all throughout scripture when every indication is that they don't want saving and that he should give up? It's because humans are made in God's own image. He loves them. He delights in them. We have inherent worth and dignity and value and purpose simply because of whose likeness we bear. Our bodies in that way are theological in nature. They're thoughtfully designed signposts reflecting the glory and creativity and majesty of God himself. And there are billions of little statue-like creatures all showing off the one true king. 
This is why in the story of scripture, the, the devil, the enemy, is consistently seen attacking people because every human person reminds him of someone who he hates, God. And then to show even more of the value and importance of the body, God's plan of redemption for his embodied image bearers was to enter his creation in bodily form. God himself took on flesh in order to save his creation. Our bodies are a psychosomatic union made to image God, to be filled with the spirit of God, to be filled with the spirit of God. Just like the breath of God animated the first humans, our bodies are made to be filled with God's spirit. It's what they're destined for. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is calling the church away from sinning with their bodies, but check out the language that he uses. This is 1 Corinthians chapter six. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So in the Old Testament, the temple was, was where God's spirit dwelt, the meeting place between God and, and sinful people. But Paul says that this temple, in a sense, has been replaced by something better. So sin can't dwell with God, but once Jesus dealt with our sin and cleansed us, he sent the spirit of God to actually indwell our very bodies, restoring the connection we were designed for in the very beginning. So now it's made clear that the vessel God wanted to fill all along wasn't just some building in the Middle Eastern desert, but the very animated flesh that he gathered in his hands and breathed into and smiled about. So our bodies are made to be filled with many things. Our survival depends on our filling of it. The most important thing it was made to be filled with is the spirit of God himself. And then lastly, to cultivate the earth with God. To cultivate the earth with God. Going back to Genesis 1, you know what human beings were made for is world domination. And I mean that kind of literally. They were told to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it in a million creative and beautiful ways, to build civilizations and cities and families and businesses, to bring order and peace and joy to this untamed world. To have dominion means to, to rule, to exercise the delegated authority given to us by God to spread his rule and reign here. So pastor and author Sky Jathani says it this way. He says, quote, as creatures made by God to represent God, we are to rule the earth on behalf of God. Scholars recognize this as a common arrangement in the ancient world. Rulers of large empires would often appoint governors or viceroys to rule over parts of their empire on their behalf. So the imagery in Genesis is of a sovereign God who rules over the cosmos, but who has empowered people to exercise rule over the earth as his representatives. So we should, we should not be surprised, therefore, to read in the last book of the Bible that when God completes his work of redemption, his people will, quote, rule on the earth, Revelation 5. They will, quote, rule forever and ever, Revelation 22. And they will, quote, rule with Christ, Revelation chapter 20. See, by being given a body, every human is given authority and power over the earth, the ability to enact change. And our bodies are meant to join in God's work of spreading his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to use the inherent power of our bodies to rule like God in a way that brings blessing and flourishing to those around us instead of selfishly contributing to breakdown and decay. The Christian story of what the body is for is way more grand, way more epic than any of the competing stories. It's a story that literally lasts 
into eternity, when those of us in Christ will have our physical bodies raised from the earth and rule over the new heavens and the new earth with him. All right, so all that's foundation, all that's set up for where we're going. I, I know where we live. I know when we live. Uh, I know what the temperature is out there. I know the pressure and the questions that, that some of us face. Uh, I would argue we live in a context that is somehow both incredibly unreflective, having never really wrestled with questions like, what is the body for? And yet simultaneously incredibly confident that they know all the answers. So next week, we're going to get into the topic of gender. The following week, we're going to talk about God's design to unite love across difference in marriage. Then we'll talk about why God designed sex to be in marriage. We're going to talk about desires, what we do with ones that don't line up with God's design. We're going to talk about how to walk wisely in our culture. And at the end, we'll talk about the end for us in Christ, the resurrection of our physical bodies. So all that's coming. I hope and, and have been praying that uh, the series will be thought-provoking, lead you to have a little more confidence in a very unstable culture. Um, to end the day, today, I wanted to hit a little more of a pastoral note. So I want to do something. I want to just lead a little bit of a reflection here. Because here, here's the thing. With all this talk about bodies and who they belong to and what they're for, you walked in here this morning in your body. You're sitting down listening to me in your body. You're thinking about the words I'm saying right now in your body. So I want you to just take a second and sit still. You can close your eyes if you want to. It's a free country, though. You don't have to. Just for a second, I want you to just pause. Try to feel your heartbeat. Feel the slow rhythm of your heart beating. I want you to feel the breath going in and out of your lungs. Inflating, deflating. Does that group of muscles expand and contract to keep your body alive? I want you to notice the surface of your skin, what you're, what you're feeling. You think for a second about all the cells in your body working in quiet to keep your stomach and liver and lungs working in a way that you rarely, if ever, perceive their presence, but are very much keeping you alive. So here's my question. How do you feel about your body? How do you feel about your body? What story are you living in as it relates to your body? And the most honest part of you, what do you think and feel as it relates to your body? My hunch is some of us are living in the secular story for our bodies. Our body is an amusement park of sorts and haven't, haven't really given much thought to deeper questions beyond where your next hit of endorphins is coming from. Our bodies don't mean anything might as well just have fun with it. This morning, I would like to invite you into a far more meaningful story because you were made for more than that. Your body's meant to be a temple of the Spirit of God. 
filled with God himself. It wasn't meant to be filled with immorality and substances and gluttonous amounts of entertainment and numbing strategies. Nothing short of God will ever truly fill you because he's what you were made for. The hunch is that others of us are living in some version of the Gnostic story. We feel in some ways incongruent from our bodies in some way, shape, or form. It feels like a cage you'd really like to escape from or change. You might feel like an imposter who's different from the real you that's trapped inside. Maybe you're trying to escape the limits of your human body. This could take all different types of forms. It could be through decisions you're making, through refusal to rest your body, refusal to take care of it, pushing it beyond the limits of work or sleep, depriving it of the resources it needs to thrive. It could be substances and neglecting nutrition. Some of your bodies need a vegetable badly. So I would ask you, are you treating your body the way an image bearer being deserves? God gave you your body to stewards, not to mistreat or misuse as a control mechanism. Bodies made in the image of God have limits that must be respected. Some of you are obsessed with your body. You worship at the scale or the mirror. And you try to wrestle your face, your skin, your hair into submission. But the God in the mirror never blesses you the way you hope it will. Because that God is aging and graying and growing wrinkles. Time and gravity remain undefeated. But you still worship your appearance nonetheless because it's all you know. You need to know there is a better God and a truer peace that comes from accepting your body as a gift, not as a God or goddess. Some of us in the room think and maybe even say horrible things about our bodies. I heard recently up to 90% of adults, both men and women, report that they hate their bodies. Up to 90%. Researchers said the feeling the average American has about their body is, quote, normative discontent normative discontent. I'm not going to pretend that I know all the factors that have combined to form your attitude and disposition towards your body, but I do know that I want something better for you than normative discontent, and I know that it's available to you in the Christian story. Listen to the way David speaks of God's view of the creation of his body, and I want you to hear the same delight that God has over yours. This is from Psalm 139. He says, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made and wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. Those those verses to me sound an awful lot, like a creator standing over creatures bearing his image, smiling and saying, this is very good. Please do not settle for a story that's anything less than that. Let's pray.